Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 132. In this episode, we're talking about gospel scholarship and Jesus films with Dr. Mark Goodacre. Dr. Mark Goodacre is Francis Hill Fox Professor of Religious Studies at Duke University and the author of a number of important studies on the historical Jesus, the Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Problem, and the Gospel of Thomas. And he's the creator of one of the original biblioblogs called NT Blog and one of the original Biblical Studies podcasts called the NT Pod. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Brandon Hurlbert, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So it was lovely to have Dr. Goodacre on the podcast to talk about how Jesus films reflect gospel scholarship and how gospel scholarship can appeal to Jesus films in some interesting ways. What were some of the takeaways that you all had from our conversation with Dr. Goodacre? I really appreciate our time with Mark because of the way he just loves to nerd out about movies. You know, you it's, it's not often you find a biblical scholar that is so prestigious and so published and all these kind of different things that loves to talk about pop culture and all the things he just kind of just delves into. And I think that's been reflected on his blog. It's been reflected in his podcast. And so it's neat to just be part of uh, a conversation with him about uh, Jesus films and uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and all the kind of different stuff. Yeah. I think that this conversation really shows uh, Mark's, engagement with uh, Jesus films and his his real interest in seeing how culture interacts with uh, the Bible and and also vice versa how uh, the biblical narratives how the gospels really uh, affect and inform the culture that we that we generate regarding them and I really appreciate our conversation we range from the sublime of uh, Pasolini's uh, gospel according to Matthew and the, the apparent boredom of students uh, in watching that uh, right through to modern depictions of Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, I, I appreciated Mark's just candor of sharing a, a bit about his own experience of, of watching films and what was meaningful to him and also express certain surprising films that he that he's actually enjoyed. I, I really appreciate that. I like the reminder that what we do as biblical scholars or uh, maybe if you're not a biblical scholar listening to this, that uh, your nerdiness actually is important, uh, is that when we watch films, we we can be charitable, we can enjoy pop culture, we can enjoy these things, but we don't need to do it uncritically. And I think our conversation with Mark highlighted the need for critical engagement uh, with uh, these films. I think Dr. Goodacre enlightened us in seeing the different perspectives of the centrality of the story, right? So uh, I, I imagine it's kind of like a car accident. There's different witnesses on each side. They both saw the accident, but their perspectives are gonna inform how they visually display it. And I think as we talked with him, he gave us different like vignettes of experiences of the Jesus films uh, that showed the cultural angles across looking at the same story, but also showing particularities uh, of of the stories uh, and along the lines of what everyone else said with this sense of awe and wonder uh you know the nerdiness of uh of this moment to say like that you can look at it with a critical lens but you don't have to take it so seriously knowing that um there could be so many angles by which we can see the cinematic schemas of jesus films 
And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Mark Goodacre. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Goodacre. It's, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So we're really excited to uh, talk with you today about gospel scholarship and historical Jesus scholarship and how that does or does not uh, intersect with uh, Jesus films. And mm-hmm. I thought maybe as a, as a way to open this conversation, uh, could you tell, tell us a little bit about why a gospel scholar like yourself would be interested in Jesus films in the first place? Sure. I mean, I just happen to be interested in Jesus films anyway. I think my interest in Jesus films predates my interest in New Testament scholarship. So as a child, I have a very strong memory of watching Jesus of Nazareth in 1977. I mean, admittedly, I did sneak a little earphone into my left ear because it was on on a Sunday night at the same time that the new Top 40 was on Radio 1. So obviously I had to try and listen to that at the same time. But um, equally, Jesus Christ Superstar, I remember being a huge thing when I was a child and a teenager and King of Kings used to come on TV regularly. Greatest story ever told. So I actually think it might have been the Jesus films that made me interested in New Testament scholarship rather than the other way around. But having said that, I think that one of the reasons I go back to Jesus films over and over again is because there are so many gaps in the record when you look at the historical Jesus. I mean, we, I mean, we like to think we know lots because you know we've got four gospels that we pour over and write endless commenters on but actually what they contain is is a tiny tiny percentage even if all that they say was a hundred percent accurate historical eyewitness reporting it's still only the tiniest fraction of Jesus's life therefore I would say a good historian needs imagination and how do you get your imagination stimulated when the record is so slight? Well, you use other people's imagination, other artists' imaginations, and Jesus films help you to do that. So I think that's one of the reasons I go back to them all the time, because the imaginative process of great artists takes you back to the text in a fresh and interesting way. I appreciate that. Uh, as a unapologetic Titanic historian, I watch the movie Titanic all the time to the point where I can point out all the fallacies of it. <laughs> yet I'm still intrigued by it because it brings me into a visual experience of what it may have captured for those who can't comprehend or can't or, or can't tell the story, right? And so I think even when we think about putting narrative to film, um, there's always these gaps that that we we try to fill in, but for you, in terms of historicity, how important uh, is the historical account as we're trying to help the audience visualize maybe just the core meaning of what what mm-hmm. what it means to be a historical Jesus, like without sure. the, the the clear um, narrative pieces that films provide. Well, I I love the analogy with Titanic because in a sense, it is similar to Jesus films in that you've got, I mean, all right, there's the one massive Titanic films, the James Cameron film, but there's a bunch of other really great films as well, including the BBC Titanic that um, 
Nigel Stafford Clark produced. And, and, and the reason why I'm a nerd on that is because Nigel Stafford Clark also worked on um, the BBC Passion, which I, <laughs> I worked on with him too as a consultant. So the, um, and one of the things I would say about, sorry, this is a very roundabout way of, of um, addressing that point or that question, but, but one thing I would say is that having worked with people like Nigel Stafford Clark, they really want to get the history right. So in the BBC Passion in 2007, they genuinely wanted to get the history right. And in fact, they were reacting against the Mel Gibson film, which they felt had got the history frequently and disturbingly and in a politically dangerous way wrong. So I think one of the things that I do find exciting about Jesus Films is that yes, history does matter. And it does matter if you depict, for example, something that is really anachronistic about the Judaism of Jesus's day, when it's something that can actually resonate with a viewer now, and, 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 and they, they can find insulting and problematic and can reinforce the stereotypes. So I think, I think the answer is history does matter. And, and I think that's why it's always good in any Jesus film, if they do employ academic scholars, they don't always, but if they do employ academics and check things and say, well, is it plausible to have a Star of David in the Nazareth synagogue? Of course it isn't at all, but, but I mean, it's there in Zeffirelli's film. And, um, and that is probably not terribly harmful, but there, there are examples then you could choose which are harmful and are problematic from things like Gibson's film, where there are things that are both anachronistic and problematic because they're anachronistic. So yes, I think history matters. Uh, that reminds me of uh, the film Jesus of Montreal, where there's a shady parking lot scene where the uh, priest or the academic pulls out. So, you know, this is like every academic's uh, fantasy of being approached <laughs> in, in, in a parking lot and being like, yes, here's my here's my dissertation. Here's my research, yes. you know. But, I, you know, I, I feel like that film is an interesting one because it's you know, it's a kind of tableau, a film within a film uh, or, you know, production within a film. And they're trying to do, they're trying to bring in this history. I don't know. I wanted to know what you thought about those movements and whether or not you feel like Jesus of Montreal is, is heading in the right direction or have they uh, tried, have they incorporated mm -hmm. biblical scholarship that now we can look back and go, oh, it's actually a bit, that scholarship's a bit dated. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's I mean, that's that's a, that's a great comment. I mean, the, the thing with an academic being approached by someone that's working in the media and then being interested in our research, I mean, our general response to that is chance to be a fine thing, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're lucky if they show the remotest interest in our research. So I kind of love that fiction. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I love the way that Jesus of Montreal pays serious attention to the scholarship and I there, there are lines in it which are infuriating it I mean it, it has it pays far too much heed to mythicist ideas and and in fact and this is you know a film that's made you know long before mythicism had the kind of purchase that it has now so that's kind of disappointing because as a viewer I'm thinking oh you're giving the audience the impression that the mythicist position is a, is an academically defensible one, and I know it, it kind of is, but you know, obviously, we don't need to get into those. And the church now, is like but... trying, and the church is like trying to suppress it in the film. And, yeah, uh, 
yeah. yeah, and it plays, yeah, and it does. And the thing is, it it, it plays into a certain kind of anti-ecclesial bias that obviously some academics would kind of enjoy, but the way it's done is is it, it can jar a little bit. I suppose the positive side of the anti-ecclesial bias of something like Jesus of Montreal is that it's taking things like the Matthew 23 woes against scribes and Pharisees. And instead of it being directed against first century scribes and Pharisees, which can kind of reinforce certain anti-Semitic stereotypes, it has them addressed directly at contemporary Catholic priests. Does then play, of course, into a little bit of a potentially anti-ecclesial and anti-Catholic thing, but actually I can cope with that a little bit better than I can with some of the anti-Semitic stereotypes. But, but yeah, I, I, on the whole, I think, I think broad answer, I like the way that Jesus Montreal engages seriously with scholarship. Like any media piece, there are going to be things that we, with all our kind of fancy nuanced perspectives, are going to say, oh, I don't quite like that and I don't quite like that. But it, it, in the round, I love the way they do that. I think it just makes it, it, it adds a whole extra dimension to it. Another controversial Jesus film from the 80s, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. One of the things that um, I think about in regards to that film is uh, specifically the um, scholarship around uh, and, and the question around Jesus's self-understanding. Obviously, the film opens by, by, you know, with the title card basically saying, you know, this is not about the Gospels, you know, because it really is about this kind of thematic flesh versus the spirit sort of battle. But what I find so interesting about The Last Temptation of Christ is this movement that Jesus goes through where he's quite confused about, you know, who he is and what he's meant to do. And he, mm. he moves from having a mission of peace to having a mission inspired by John the Baptist acts one that's more mm -hmm. kind of uh, violent in nature to finally the kind of third movement of realizing that he's meant to die. And this is kind of where, where he pivots towards the cross. But what I think is so interesting about that last movement is this idea that uh, he, he comes to this realization based basically from his reading of scripture and at the time in the 80s, you know, you had people like N.T. Wright and R.T. France who were basically arguing for a similar type of self-understanding based upon uh, Jesus's reading of Israel scriptures. I I'm curious uh, um, if you have any thoughts about just that kind of issue of the self-understanding of Jesus as it is, is play played out in that film, uh, especially relative to other Jesus films. Right. Well, it's no, I mean, it's a fascinating film. It's 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 brilliant and frustrating all at the same time, like a deeply flawed work of genius, I would say. That's my kind of takeaway from it. I love the way that Scorsese at least tries to trace some kind of development in Jesus's thinking, because in some senses, that's the holy grail. It's the one thing that you just can't really properly do as a historical Jesus scholar. I mean, if you if you seriously think that you can map some kind of development in Jesus's own self-understanding from the Gospels, I think you're deluding yourself. I, I think it's just the materials are not there for that, however much we might want to try and persuade ourselves that they are. And that doesn't mean that you can't do it using the imagination. And and, and I love the fact that Scorsese, working with Kazantzakis' novel, uses the imagination to say, well, why can't we tell the story this way? And, and to take one example where it's challenged my way of looking at historical Jesus scholarship, the John the Baptist scene, that bizarre scene in Last Temptation of Christ where, you know, there are kind of bare-breasted women and there are a kind of 
you know, all sorts of things going on is relatively late in the film. So it avoids the cliche of we have to do John the Baptist right at the beginning. And what I love about that is that I think we, however much we know that the insights of form criticism are fundamentally right and that we cannot trace a clear narrative chronology in the gospels nevertheless we still behave like we can and i have actually been going through historical jesus scholarship and noting the sheer number of people who assume that you've got jesus with john the baptist at the beginning like mark says then john is arrested and then jesus gets on with his ministry and the thing is that's just mark's construction it might have happened that way it probably didn't. I mean, and one of the reasons I think it probably didn't is because John the Baptist and his disciples keep popping up in the narrative later on anyway. And of course, famously in John, he then has to add, a, add an apologetic note about the fact that John's still, you know, going well, Jesus is in ministry. So I like the fact that sometimes when you watch a Jesus film like Last Temptation, it is so imaginatively interesting and subversive that it takes you back to the gospels and helps you to reread them and say, actually, this is just Mark's construction. And, and I think for somebody like me who thinks Matthew knew Mark and Luke knew Matthew and Mark and John knew all three, it really is one really influential and influential construction, which could have been told a different way, you know. So yes, I, I love the fact Last Temptation does that. Every time I watch it, it makes me think fresh thoughts about the historical Jesus. Ironically, because it is the one which right up from the back, like you say, at the beginning says, we're not trying to do, you know, the history as it, you know, it, it, we, you know it's, it's much more open about its fictional elements. So, so I'm interested in, in that, Mark. One of the things with Jesus films is that you have a, a range of uh, in, interpretations of tradition. Uh, and a lot of the time, it, the, the pl- plethora helps us get at different aspects of uh, the Jesus narrative. And even within some of the, the more... Um, common retelling such as Jesus Christ Superstar you have different uh, interpretations then of the the one play so I'm interested so in your work do you do anything with uh, those different source traditions I guess we could we could call them uh, in engaging with the Jesus film this is a bit of a more of the meta question on Jesus films oh well the meta questions the meta questions are good and I suppose we, we, we've already kind of touched on that a little bit in the sense that you can have completely different tellings of the Titanic story, which is which we have far more concrete historical data from multiple eyewitnesses than we do <clears throat> about the Jesus tradition. But um, yes, I love the fact that every production of Jesus Christ Superstar is, is really different. And one of the issues there is uh, famously is the problem of the resurrection. If you, if you write a musical with no overt resurrection scene, do you just not have one? I mean, the 1973 film pretty much doesn't have one. I mean, some people argue that you can see a shepherd silhouetted against the horizon and maybe that's Jesus. I'm not sure if that's wishful thinking. But I mean, if you go and see most adaptations of Jesus Christ Superstar, you're going to have a curtain call. And if you have a curtain call, Jesus comes back, or at least the actor playing Jesus comes back. And so you're kind of forced to have some kind of reappearance of Jesus that you don't have to have if you're doing it in film and TV. And then you've got the additional decision of how is he gonna be dressed? 
is he going to be dressed like he is in Superstar or, you know, or you know, is, is he going to be in a fine raiment or are you going to present him in a blooded robe? Either way works as, a, as an image of the resurrected Jesus. One, you can think of him as the glorified ascended Jesus. Another one, you can think of him as the crucified and resurrected Jesus. So, so yes, I think, I think very much Jesus Christ Superstar is such a good example of something that enables you to do that. Probably unlike Godspell, which which I think has a much harder time with the resurrection, given that it tries so hard to do its own weird kind of secular version of of the resurrection. So so yeah, I, I think I think I, I I'm endlessly fascinated by the way that people try and write an ending for Jesus Christ Superstar. And I think that is quite like Mark's gospel as well, that people are always trying to write or reproduce fresh endings for Mark's gospel. So, so what we're really saying is the gar at the end of Mark's gospel is, <laughs> is Jesus silhouetted on the horizon. As a shepherd. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, but, but the thing is, I suppose the, the, the real analogy between the two is at the end of the 73 film, all the other characters do appear. Uh, yeah, getting back on the bus, you know, Pilate and Caiaphas and everybody, but Jesus doesn't. And that does echo, I think, Mark 16, where Jesus is conspicuous by his absence. You know, we actually have that line, he is not here. And all right, there's this idea he's going to be in Galilee, but but at least when Mark's gospel ends at 16, 8, you know, he isn't present. So I, I think, I, I mean, I, it's difficult to think of anything that is quite as strident as Jesus Christ Superstar in paralleling Mark 16. And I don't know whether that was conscious with Tim Rice. I've never, you know, had never heard an interview where he where he talks about that. I mean, in the in the score, the the very last track is uh, is is basically the burial. So he seems self-conscious that and so that so the tune the very last track is, is basically Jesus being buried. He so he he seems not deliberately to make a decision not to depict a resurrection story. In, in some ways, having that um, retelling over many generations also helps with uh, seeing the cultural impact of, mm -hmm. of the narrative. And one of the interesting parts is uh, if the US production more recently, Judas uh, was arrested in the mm -hmm. Capitol riots um, mm -hmm. and, and subsequently replaced. And that, I think, adds a, this really different sort of flavour to what is happening culturally with mm. both Jesus Christ Superstar and in the American context. Well, it's a, right, a good point. And, and I think it in Jesus Christ Superstar in particular invites you to do the thing which, of course, has been done with Shakespeare for generations, where you make the decision, are we going to go like kind of 16th century on this or are we going to do our times? And I think, you know, we've all seen like multiple, you know, Shakespeare productions and, and generally it, as, as long as they're not too pretentious, I think we kind of like it when there's some either mixing of chronologies or some blatant contemporary stuff going on there. And Jesus Christ Superstar really invites that very much. So it's it strange, oddly so, because in its own way, it is quite dated. I mean, you know, it, I mean, a lot of it is so blatantly seventies, but then that I suppose encourages us to update it and bring it into the 21st century. In light of the increasing conversations of biblical illiteracy amongst Christians, how, how much do you think that merits uh, a clearer argument for more historical depictions of Jesus, or does it actually 
cause people to become more biblically literate as they examine these various films? I mean, I think it is. I think it depends a little bit on the individual, unfortunately. Uh, and one of the things that I must admit I do find disappointing is the extent of the momentum that comes from a particular church's backing of certain films. So The Passion of the Christ was absurdly popular in large part because it got backed by lots and lots of churches. And, and that was partly that was partly the genius of um, Gibson and his team's production, you know, you know, publicity, that he did push it out to church ministers. I mean, I managed to get to see one of the preview screenings at the time because someone tipped me off that there was a preview screening for local ministers. So I, you know, I'm not ordained, I wasn't a minister, but someone tipped me off and I just turned up. And, and walked in with all of these all these ministers. I mean, I mean, genius to, to, to do that. And I think you can then contrast that with something like Young Messiah, which I actually really love. Uh, I think it's a, a, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's a fascinating theological essay into what on earth it means to have a child Messiah. And the churches didn't like it on the whole. I know that's, I know that's an, an exaggeration, but the fact that the churches didn't get behind it means it basically just, didn't have that momentum. And then contrast again, the Bible, the History Channel series, which loads and loads of churches got behind, deeply flawed uh, series in all sorts of ways, but the churches liked it and it got phenomenal viewing figures. And then, you know, fast forward to the present and and uh, I, I don't know if you've all seen The Chosen, but, but I mean, The Chosen is getting huge, huge backing by many, many churches. And then that creates the kind of word of mouth and this kind of exponential sort of increase in popularity for the thing. And uh, I mean, it, it does mean that I suppose the not we, the, you know, the, those who regard academic, professional scholars with some degree of suspicion, they're actually, you know, you get this kind of contrast between the stuff that we probably like and which might well be Jesus of Montreal last temptation of Christ and the stuff that they like which is more likely to be passion of the Christ and and the chosen so it that's a little frustrating and, and I I sort of I suppose in different ways I want to try and occupy a space in between those so, you know, being a bit of a kind of, I don't know, being a bit countercultural, I actually will want to say to some scholars who are skeptical, say, about The Chosen, it's a great piece of work in all sorts of places. I mean, it drives me nuts in all sorts of other, I mean, the anachronisms in it, you know, drive me crazy, but it's a beautiful piece of work at different points. And, but, 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 but I mean, the, I'll also want to go and say to, some people that think that you know last temptation of the christ sorry last temptation of christ or life of brian to take another example are you know kind of the work of the devil i wanted to say you actually would really profit from spending some time watching that and rethinking the gospels in the light of it so it's a complicated thing because i think the jesus films on the whole do rely for their popularity on certain sectors within the church getting behind them. And, and that's always therefore gonna be a problem because the ones that end up being absolutely massive are not necessarily those that, that 
people like us would like best. What you're saying really made me think of, uh, I just recently watched the movie Hail Caesar. I know I'm a little behind. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Yeah. Where he gathers the movie producer, gathers all the, you know, the priest, the Baptist minister, the rabbi, and and it's all about the commercial appeal and how Mm -hmm. he can get the churches to get involved and at least at the very least not condemn the movie. And it's a, it's like one of those meta movies. If you guys haven't seen it, where they're filming a movie Ben Hurish about Jesus and uh, and they're all the stuff in the background is going on. So I was thinking about the commercialism aspect of it and how how that kind of plays into our understanding of like is this something that should be commercialized? Is it something that the church should be paying attention to and pointing out the anachronisms, or is it something that the church should say? despite the anachronisms, we're going to use it because it's a message for the gospel. And, and, mm-hmm. and, it, and hopefully it'll turn people back to scripture to actually look at um, what's going on in the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a great question. I, and, and I think part of the problem is that it's people like us that are more bothered about the anachronisms than people in the church. So I, I'll give you, let me give you a concrete example. When Matthew, the tax collector in The Chosen, opens up his little book in his booth to start writing up people's taxes. I thought I have never seen anything that looked less like <laughs> less like what was probably happening in Galilee in the first century. And at that moment, I just, just leave I, my, my mind. Just now, if I were watching that with my mother-in-law, who is a devoted evangelical Christian, wouldn't matter to her in the slightest and maybe it shouldn't maybe it doesn't matter but I suppose for me history does matter because the process of being a scholar is is often asking those questions and some of them might sound trivial like you know did people use desks in antiquity you know did they have codices in the first century and things like that but other things end up mattering more than that and 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 the fact that I I don't think it's trivial for example that scholars of Christian origins are highly sensitive to issues of the way that Jews and Judaism are represented in the first century. And when we see anachronisms there, then that's potentially damaging and it's politically really problematic. So I do think that those things matter in the end. The problem is that I don't think they always matter to those who are really pushing those films. I mean, I've talked to many people about the passion of the Christ who couldn't understand why academics were making such a fuss, you know, and and they, it was almost like they, they thought, well, they must be making a fuss because it shows Jesus really suffering and they find it difficult seeing Jesus really suffering, you know? And, and so, and, and you, you, it's always the problem I think of being an academic we're obsessed with what to other people seem like minutiae and nuance, but to us, they don't seem that way. So, so yeah, I, I think, but like all these things, the conversation is the important thing and drawing attention to these issues is, is the important thing. And, and it's obviously easy as well to caricature the church and certain sectors of the church. And, you know, I used the word evangelical a while ago. Um, there are plenty of evangelical Christians that would have quite a strong critique of, Gibson's Passion of the Christ and other things as well. So I don't want to particularly imply that evangelicals are at fault. There are plenty of Catholics that, you know, and arguably more so who thought it was it was wonderful. There's also a huge sector of the Catholic Church that were critical of it. So, you know, obviously I want to be careful about, you know, kind of 
caricaturing or, or or whatever but at the same time i think we're all aware of the fact that there are certain jesus films and series that are overwhelmingly popular for reasons other than their historical accuracy and their thoughtfulness and and them having done their research properly one of the things about the passion too is the zeitgeist at the time you have um, this this Jesus film that is uh, I would argue as far as the genre goes a horror film actually the way yeah. that the the blue light uh, and the the eerie music the creepy demon babies and demon children mm. and not to mention the torture porn right that we yeah. see in the film the the movies that were most popular in the mid 2000s were like saw and hostile and so um, to me it just it and and obviously the post 9-11 um, dynamic there, uh, you, you know, you, you just have this like very um, like obvious anachronism of, of locatedness uh, that that uh, is unacknowledged. I think that's the problem with the passion is, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are like, well, I just want to see like, you know, w- what, what it was really like for Jesus to be mm-hmm. crucified. And, uh, and and of course, that's not what we're getting. We're getting, you know, Mel Gibson's horror film about Jesus, essentially. And mm-hmm. to top it off, the sequel of the passion of the Christ is in the works and it's going to be about the uh, G- Jesus in hell and, and taking mm-hmm. the saints out of hell, which just, I think further underscores the fact that this is a horror film. Um, but uh, just on that point about what it was really like, could you speak to crucifixion in the first century in relation sure. to what we see in the passion? The difference too, is the claims that Mel Gibson and his crew were making, right? The claims that they saying this is historically accurate and and this is how it was and all these kind of different things putting into the context into the time like if you look at you know jesus christ superstar the claims that they're making isn't this is exactly how it went and this goes according to the written gospels that we have right so that set in its time like you're talking about the crucifixion and the claims that the film are making that what does that have to do with everything else no right it's i've really grappled with these things a lot myself because i'll be absolutely frank and this is really unpopular opinion amongst a lot of academics i do find the passion of the christ profoundly moving film in spite of myself i can sit there and well i won't say i can i'll I'll tell you what actually happens i sit there and i have tears pouring down my face when i'm watching it okay and i know that that's a very unacademic thing to say but i say that because films are visceral they are supposed to connect with you in this deeply sentimental kind of way. And it works with me. I'm actually almost embarrassed to say that that's the case. It does work with me because I'm watching it. And I know that the crucifixion it's depicting is probably unlike what we, what we know of crucifixion. Although having said that, it's pretty astonishing how they do it. I mean, I, one way that I, I try and do this with, with students is, I actually show them a few different scenes of crucifixions from Jesus films and look at how they actually have done it. Because because what Gibson, of course, does, he's uh, caviezel has got like a kind of plastic arm and the actual arm is actually inside the hollow bit of the cross. And it's a pretty brilliant piece of whatever else you think of the film. It's a genius way of doing, you know, the, the scene and the blood spurting out and everything um so i've slightly lost that lost the point of this here but yeah horror film yeah i remember mark commode saying that it was a lot of people said it was a sadistic film and it, he said it's more of a masochistic film because you as a viewer 
if you continue watching, you are making the decision to continue watching the sheer horror. And a lot, lots of horror films are like that. It's the whole thing of watching it through, you know, I don't want to watch it, but I do kind of thing. So there's that masochistic element to it. I, I, th- th- what's, what is, what is tough about it is, is the idea that it is more accurate than other films. And I don't know how harsh we should be to Gibson and others about that one, insofar as pretty much every Jesus film claims that in one way or another. I mean, we talked about Scorsese's earlier on, and he's kind of the exception, but even he was reading the Biblical Archaeology Review to try and get things right, and he made a real effort to try and make his crucifixion seem historically accurate. And, you know, the number of Jesus films that have that have actually said as part of their blurb well this is the most accurate you'll see I so I don't know how I don't I don't know if we're quite right in giving Gibson a hard time about that I'd rather give him a hard time about some of the other things that are there and and also I think for lots of I mean let's just take it away purely from Gibson and, and, and look at other people as well our distinction between being historically accurate as opposed to say being faithful to the New Testament would is just like scholastic nonsense to lots of people. Of course, it matters a lot to us because we don't think that you read from the pages of the New Testament directly to what Jesus of Nazareth actually did in, in time and space. I mean, they, they may reflect, you know, historical events, but, but you know, we, they're, they're up for a discussion for us. And so when we say, well, you talk about them being historically accurate, but well, what lots of people would answer is we're being faithful to the Gospels. I mean, so that's what Dallas Jenkins would say about the chosen, even though there's lots and lots and lots of imaginative material in there. He tries deliberately not to contradict anything that you would see in the Gospels. So our nice distinctions between what's historical and what's not don't always resonate with people who are just trying to be faithful to the gospels and that's why you know this stuff about the greatest story ever told always comes in at the end of the day they are trying to tell a story that is powerful and meaningful to many many people and i think some i think we have to remember that sometimes as as scholars we have to remember that you know these are, you know, these are texts that mean something to many, many individuals, you know, and, and that, you know, that are inspiring to them. So it, it, in a way, it's not surprising that they struggle with Last Temptation of Christ more than we would say. I find it interesting with um, that question of anachronism and, and, and faithfulness, sorry, using scare quotes, faithfulness to the, uh, the, the scriptures. Pasolini's 964 the gospel according to St. Matthew, it's, it's ostensibly the, the first film which is directly quoting from, uh, from scripture. And yet it, it, at the same time, it's completely anachronistic in terms of its depiction of, of everyone there. You know, you have mm-hmm. the Roman soldiers look like the Renaissance uh, yeah. engagements. But one of the things that, you know, it almost brings it to life for people in the church because it, it, it seems to pick out the things that they are engaged with. So I'm interested in your, in your work in, in, with the Gospels. You've mentioned a couple of times that this seems to be a, a, a scholarly obsession with accuracy. Um, how much do you think the people in, in the pews are actually um, offended by uh, those sort of anachronisms? Well, the, it's, it's a good question. I mean, the, it's fascinating, Pasolini. It, it, it's similar 
to Jesus Christ Superstar in the sense that there's some real mixed chronology in there. There's, there's, there's an attempt to make it feel like you're walking in Galilee in the first century, but, but constantly it's evoking Spain, which is where it's being filmed. And like, you know, even Pasolini's mum, you know, is, is playing Mary. And then when you get to the, you mentioned the Romans, but when you get to the, 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 the Jewish priests, they're wearing these ludicrous waste paper bins on their head. I mean, I mean, what, where they even found them from? I mean, it was almost like they went to the costume department and said, design me the most ludicrous hats you can find and we'll use those. And, um, you know, I mean, so I, I, it's funny. It's so interesting, the Gospel of Quantum Matthew. I find that even though it's held up as being one of the greatest of all the Jesus films, I find that my undergraduate students, generally speaking, hate it. They really hate it. And I'm not, I don't just mean they're not as keen on it as they are with some others. It does nothing for them at all. And in fact, to the point where I actually have to try really hard to explain to them, and this is awful when you have to do this with art, but, <laughs> but I feel obliged to do it. I have to try and explain to them why it's so good. <laughs> and one, one way that you can do it, I think, is with his use of music. So you can you can say that the, the way he uses Bach and the way that he then uses some kind of contemporary 1960s indigenous music and that both sound for some reason utterly appropriate to the scene he's depicting. And, and then I think can begin to see it. But I don't know about any, any of the rest of you with that film. I really struggle to, to get, and, and it makes me all the more keen always to include it in my syllabus. There's been a few times when I thought, oh, we'll just get rid of it. Like, no, 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 because it, because it, is a, it is a work of genius. There's no question about it. But it, it feels to most, most of my students, and this is across many years of, of teaching Jesus in film. And I don't, I don't lead them on. I do try to do the opposite. I tell them it's brilliant. They, they struggle with it. They always tell me they're bored, really bored by it. You know, so going back to the issue of locatedness, I mean, this is from the sixties and you've got the civil rights movement going on and he's incorporated some spirituals into the, into the film. I just think, I just think that's brilliant. I do. And he's yeah. also perhaps the first atheist homosexual to, mm -hmm. to, a film on Jesus. But, but, but I mean, I hope, I hope I'm not interrupting, but no one would guess that. I, I know that you, I know that once you know it, you can actually understand how it's working within Pasolini's, you know, kind of oeuvre. But, but I mean, I think that, I mean, so, so most of my students will say, if you hadn't told us this guy, you know, was an atheist, was a communist, whatever, we would assume this was the most orthodox kind of, you know, confessional person that was making this film you know and that and that actually also I think takes them out of it because they don't understand how somebody can think of the gospel story as something of great beauty and not actually believe in God I think that I think there's a there's there's, there's that cognitive dissonance in the viewer and actually it's almost they've got to leave that behind and just appreciate the art I think and even the very next year with the greatest story ever told you have Max von Sydow who's you know playing Jesus and he's he's not a Christian Right. Is he not? Yeah. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I actually, so th I, there's aspects of that film I absolutely love, but in general, I don't like Max von Sydow's Jesus at all. I, I find him 
really difficult to resonate with. I, I, the way he speaks seems to me utterly just just bizarre. I mean, talk about, I mean, he is, of any of the Jesuses, I think he's probably the most Gnostic. Not that, mm -hmm. you know, saying Gnostic is necessarily, you know, I'm not using that as a term of abuse, but he doesn't seem connected with it. I'm like, Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas frequently speaks and the disciples are like kind of, What's, what are you talking about? You know, this kind of thing. And that's how it feels with Max von Sydow, even when he's saying things that make complete sense. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're all kind of going, what's, what's this happening? And I suppose you've got some of that in Mark's gospel as well. I know the disciples are not fully picking up what Jesus is saying and so on. But, mm -hmm. but he, I don't watch Greatest Story Ever Told and see why people would have followed that Jesus. It just mm -hmm. seems so non-charismatic. He's not funny or engaging, you know, or attractive. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, I completely agree. He, that's that's my least favorite Jesus and my least favorite Jesus film. And, you know, mm -hmm. on, on that issue of, of his his speech, uh, he it's, it's just full of composite citations. Like mm. almost everything that he says is a stitching of multiple sayings from random contexts. Even a bit mm -hmm. of Paul, uh, you know, the, you yes. know, First Corinthians thirteen is is uh, merged yes. into some of his uh, his teaching. Um, but I I I am uh, curious since we're on the topic of the sayings of Jesus, and you're somebody who's done a lot of scholarship on the sayings of Jesus, in particular your defense of a particular solution to the synoptic problem that doesn't utilize Q as an explanation. This common source to Matthew and Luke potentially. Um, I, I was at a presentation that that you gave this past SBL in San Antonio on, on a panel talking about Matthean posteriority, you know, the idea that Matthew used Luke. And what I thought was really interesting, and I, I'd love maybe if you want to share a little bit about, about this point that you made, is how um, one, of the, one of the charges against your position um, that, that Luke used Matthew is that uh, Luke's pulling sayings from all over the place and, and moving him around in ways that, you know, we might not think is more, more likely than what we see if Matthew used Luke, because it seems to be more straightforward if that were the case kind of straight down the line incorporation. And what you did was you showed this uh, fabulous slide in which you you demonstrated that, well, actually, this is what Jesus films do. Uh, they, they're constantly pulling uh, from all over the place. I was just curious if you wanted to share a little bit about how that uh, aspect of Jesus films um, really comes, comes to play into this uh, dynamic in Jesus scholarship and gospel scholarship. Yeah, sure. No, well, no thanks for the invitation to do that. I mean, the I mean, study of the synoptic problem is 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 one of these fascinating phenomena because I find that even though I've been working on this for about twenty five years, well longer if you include graduate work before that, and I've published quite a lot on it, I still find that people make the same points to me all the time. And one of them is Luke would not have messed up Matthew's beautiful discourses. Now, when you actually dig down to it, one of the things I always well one of the response I always give is well somebody's moved the stuff around. The, the difference of the order in Matthew and Luke is a fact. There's, there's no synoptic theory where someone's not moving stuff around. So you've basically got a choice. Has Luke moved it around? Has Matthew moved it around? Or have both moved, the, moved it around? And so one of my ways of, of, of trying to attack this, I've tried multiple different ways of, 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 of attacking this thing. Um, none of them apparently are persuasive to key scholars but but one of the ways that I've tried to do it is is they'll say well 
Luke's order doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it's like, it, you know, it, it, it would only a crank would mess up Matthew's order. So, so one of the things I tried to do is show that, I mean, that's an aesthetic judgment, right? That's, that's saying, I don't like the way Luke does it. I personally do like the way Luke does it, but I mean, that's my word against theirs. So one of the things I tried to do is say, well, let's look at the way some other artists have done this. And the most obvious example is Jesus Films. Do they feel that Matthew's order is so self-evidently far superior to Luke's that we should stick with Matthew's? And the manifold evidence is they don't think that. The, the even Pasolini's Gospel according to St. Matthew basically uses Luke's order. I mean, for a start, because the Sermon on the Mount is too early in Matthew. You've basically got, if you think about Matthew's Gospel, you've got chapter four, where you get four disciples called, the first four, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And then we go into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 1, before there's any more disciples called. Matthew's going to be called in Matthew 9, four chapters later. I don't think it's in the least bit absurd to imagine that Luke sees that and thinks, well, hold on a minute, who are these disciples he's talking to? There's four of them. So let's shove it a little bit later and get all 12 disciples called first. And then when Jesus looks at his disciples, he can speak to I to me, that's 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 logic. I've made that point. They go, mm, no, 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 Luke wouldn't have done that. So I then point out Pasolini does exactly that. Basically, the Sermon on the Mount, he moves it much later in the narrative in a way that corresponds to where it is in Luke's gospel. So you've got to get the disciples called first and then you can address them. Right. So and, it's not, and then, of course, it's not just Pasolini. It's all of them. It's everything. The only ones that don't are those that are following the order of Matthew precisely, which is basically the Visual Bible 1996, is it, piece? And the and the recent, um, uh, the recent rather good um, word for word um, stuff. So. So I, I think it's a bit like earlier when we were talking about how historical Jesus studies can interact with Jesus film studies. I think they can with synoptic problem studies as well. Of course, I knew I was setting, but by even talking about Jesus films in the same context as this, I knew I was setting myself up for people going, oh, yeah, it's just an anachronism. Goodacre seems to think that 20, 20th century cinema provides a good analogy for what Luke's doing. It's like, no, I actually say in the article, you're the ones making an aesthetic judgment about this, and I'm going to look at what other aesthetic judgments exist in the 20th century. So if you're making a value judgment. I'm going to look at some other people's value judgments. Anyway, never mind. They still say it. Uh, I've been, I mean, I, I, I've been told multiple times, oh, 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 oh you, you don't seem, you know, you don't seem to realise it's not a good analogy. Well, analogies always have a context and a function and, you know, and so it, it, occasionally you can risk doing these things and you have to risk being an object of ridicule <laughs> sometimes. But thankfully I've got tenure, so I'm not too worried these days about that. And besides, John was probably right in his chronological order anyway. <laughs> well i think well i i mean this takes as little out of these things but i'm writing a book at the moment that argues that john presupposes the synoptic ordering and i think you can see it at multiple points that there's certain points where where even where john does things in a different order he kind of subtly shows that he knows the synoptic order but but yeah absolutely and fronting the clearing of the temple um, would seem to be an acknowledgement of that, um, and and also I'd, I argue it's an acknowledgement of 
the events of 70. Um, right, absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and it's a deeply synoptic thing to do as well. All right, they all have the cleansing of the temple at the end. But by putting it at the beginning, you're basically saying this entire narrative is about Jesus's death. I mean, I know it's an obvious point, but I mean, it's it, 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 there's plenty of reason to do that. And they're taught, you know, and even explicitly in the context, the disciples are thinking about the resurrection. So it, 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 whatever you think about the historical placement of the temple incident, the way that it's narrated in John is related to the passion and resurrection. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, Chris. As, as a uh, as a final cue, um, <laughs> I think I think your example and using uh, cinema and film to uh, shed light on a very old problem, I think is super helpful. And uh, people who say otherwise are silly in my book, uh, but whatever, then come fight us. But I think, you know, you know, we've been talking about how film and cinematic imagination can shine a light on our reading of scripture and kind of our own kind of nerdy scholarship can actually help inform our cinematic imagination and those can kind of work in dialogue. But we also talked a bit about how some of the films that we might like as nerdy Bible scholars might not be the same films that other people like. And we mentioned The Chosen. And I also held, I held off watching The Chosen because a lot of people were like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen. I'm like, yeah. it's, it cannot be the best thing. <laughs> um, but I, I remember watching, you know, certain parts and I thought, wow, actually this is, this is really good. And then I remember watching one scene and I think I had just read uh, uh, Matthew Thiessen's Jesus and the Forces of Death. And there's a scene where the lepers come and the disciples like pull out a knife and they're like, back, don't touch us. And they're like yelling and like cursing them out. And I was like, that is not accurate, mm -hmm. biblical. Like it's just bad in all sorts of things and mm -hmm. in a surprising way because it's uh, uh, much of the rest of the episode is, is really good. So it was really surprising. And I just wondered if there's this dialogue between the scholarship and our own reading the text at what point does cinema and film actually act as a deterrent from reading the text that that mm -hmm. people's kind of uncritical watching of a Jesus film actually end up doing damage to their interpretation mm -hmm. uh, of the text? Well, it's, it's the difficulty, isn't it, about all historical inquiries that you will always find yourself pouring your own presentist imagination into the text however much you're disciplined in not doing it I mean we do it all the time I mean I, I still find myself imagining certain events in the gospels in certain ways because I first heard them when I was a child and I imagined you know them happening in the world where I was a child so it, it's incredibly hard to discipline your imagination to stop doing that and then it becomes even harder I think for people that don't spend any time reading about the first century and, and actually reading Josephus, looking at the archaeology and all the rest of it, because then texts are just wide open to you just pouring into them, whatever it is that that you, you just assume you know would have happened. And we all know that from looking at children's Bibles, probably more susceptible to this than almost anything else. They, they are the anachronism of the anachronisms are, are, are children's bibles and you know we haven't even touched on issues around you know white jesus's but you know i still struggle to this day to get 
out of my head the white Jesus of the children's Bible that I saw that we not just saw, but that we used in my mum and dad's house, which is then reinforced when you watch King of Kings, where it, Jesus and King of Kings, Jeffrey Hunter, looked like the Jesus in the children's Bible that my mum and dad owned. How do, how do you how do you discipline your imagination to stop doing that? Well, that's where we do come in. That's where I think we do great work, because I think we actually say to people, it's very important for you to think about issues around the representation of Jesus, because they are relevant to the way we think about race and the way we think about one another. And they are relevant to certain racial stereotypes that we have actually absorbed unconsciously. So I, I think all I would say is, there's just something wonderful about studying this stuff in a university, or even if you can't do it in a university, just reading intelligent work on this stuff, because it, it, it's not just that it's exciting and gets your imagination going, but it actually, I think it ends up being politically, theologically, and historically important. Well, Dr. Goodacre, thank you so much for joining us. This has just been a wonderful conversation, and we're so glad to have you on. Pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. It's great fun. Oh, 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 oh,